It's a massive undertaking. It is without a doubt the single most critical issue that we as humans can be focused on. And it's just a vast, multi-dimensional topic. Welcome in to Studying Success. On this podcast, I interview investors and entrepreneurs who tell us about their life, the ins and outs of their industries, and the different ways that they have found success. Hi, Sonuth. So great to see you. Will Burkhart. What a treat to see you on my screen on this glorious Sunday morning in Austin, Texas. <laughs> Where in the world are you? I am currently in Saragossa, Spain, in my host family's house. So just hanging out. I just had a massive lunch, so pretty full from that. Oh, um, as, as, as is what you're supposed to do when you're in Spain. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. So I'm catching you at your, your peak alertness right as you're about to start siesta. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, good. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Well, Sonu, could you give us an intro? Well, first things first, great to meet your audience. My name is Sonu Panda. Uh, more often than not, it is pronounced Panda, just like the bear, um, which is an important way to start because I know most people will otherwise be wondering uh, whether I just simply made that name up, but indeed it is actually my last name. <laughs> Uh, and I've been going through therapy ever since the fourth grade. I've been teased mercilessly. And if nothing else, it's really handy in charming flight attendants and in charming <laughs> gate agents uh, when I'm trying to get an upgrade when I'm flying. I'm the CEO of a company called Prescriptive Data, which is a New York City-based company that focuses specifically on decarbonization of real estate as a large source globally of greenhouse gas emissions. I also have another and probably much, much more important title, which is that I am dad of one Ranveer Panda, one Rania Panda, 12 and five respectively. And I am the humble servant of one Shalu Sharma, my wife and my boss. Could you give us a little rundown of your life all the way from when you were born to your childhood to college and then to where you are now? I have to admit, I would prefer that my story in response to your question be short, which would suggest <laughs> that I was still young and, and highly vigorous. But now that I'm reasonably old, I think that story is probably going to be uh, longer um, than you had hoped. And so I trust your editing skills uh, to make sure only the right stuff makes it into this particular podcast. Uh, but I think the story for me starts with the fact that my father fancies himself as a little bit of an Indiana Jones. And I realize, um, given your age and given your audience, there might be a bunch of people on this call that have never seen Indiana Jones, um, any of the movies, let alone all four of them, which is a travesty, by the way. And I highly recommend <laughs> as an aside uh, to you and to your viewers that if you haven't watched it, that you do watch it. But, but the long and the short of it is Indiana Jones is this fantastic Hollywood character that is a swashbuckler, that's intellectually curious, and that's a global traveler. He's actually an archaeologist by trade, and he goes off on all these adventures around the world. And I sort of see my dad very much as an Indiana Jones in the sense that uh, my folks are from India. I'm from India. I was born in India uh, in a state in the eastern part of India called Orissa. And my folks moved to the States when I was quite young, which I feel like is sort of the first of their many adventures. We moved from Eastern India, ultimately to Texas, and then to Cincinnati, Ohio. 
And then from there, we started what can only be described as a epic journey. My folks moved us from me and my sister from uh, Cincinnati to Athens, Greece, while I was quite, actually, at that point, my sister wasn't in the picture yet. So it was just me and my folks. And we moved to Athens, Greece when I was relatively young, then back to the US. And then from there to Indonesia for the very first time, we lived in a small city that is now not so small called Bandung, which is not the capital of Indonesia, but is the capital of Java. And then from there, we moved to Malaysia to a town called uh, Kuala Lumpur, which only requires explanation for those that have never been to Malaysia, but it's otherwise a proper, bustling, massive uh, city in Asia. Lived there for about three years, and then just uh, between my 10th grade and 11th grade years, we moved back to Indonesia to Jakarta, which many people will know is the capital of Indonesia. And I graduated from high school there and then ultimately came back to the U.S. while my parents continued on with their final international posting being in Bombay, actually on a round-trip basis, back to India before they eventually came back to the States. So me and my sister have moved a lot. I think there's a word for this, actually, in the psychological literature, which exists only because most people assume that if you've moved this much, you're severely damaged. I'd like to make the argument that that's not the case and that it was a wonderful upbringing and that absolutely imbued me with a couple of superpowers that I'm very proud of. But suffice to say, we moved a lot around the world. We went to international schools around the world, and it was an epic and wonderful way to grow up. So that's sort of chapter, probably the most important chapter. And after that, some of the bullet points are I went to a great university, University of Pennsylvania, go Quakers in Philadelphia. And then from there, I then got this amazing opportunity to work for a company called Trilogy Software, which thankfully has done so well in and of its own right. And folks that have been there and and done that have done so well that there's even such a thing as a trilogy mafia in the technology industry. It was and is based in Austin, Texas. And then from there, I joined a company called Calidus Software in the Bay Area, in California, San Jose, specifically in the heart of San Jose. And from there, you know, spent nearly nine years working through lots of different roles and, and ultimately sort of culminating in some sales leadership roles before I had the great fortune of co-founding a company called H. Bloom that was a really terrific entrepreneurial success. Along the way, I was given this terrific opportunity to run a company in New York called Prescriptive Data, and I've been there now for five years. But I spent a lot of time in New York, and I also live here in Austin as a result. Wow. So you've lived all over the place. So how was that growing up, living in Malaysia, Indonesia, India, the States? How was that? Well, it's interesting. I think that for the vast majority of people, they can appreciate that there are certain upsides, but everybody almost always points out one singular downside. So the upsides are, it's amazing to meet people that are from different parts of the world, that are from different cultures, that are from different religions, that have grown up eating different kinds of foods because it meant that I got to, first of all, sample all of those from culture to religion to food to music to sort of physical locale. I mean, some of the places that we lived in are some of the most beautiful places in the world. But by the same token, I would say that in the course of sampling, I am a mishmash and a grab bag of all of those experiences. And so I can't help but think that I'd be a very different person if it wasn't for the ability to sample, as I just described, all of those different parts 
of those countries, but also those different parts of those countries are parts of life, right? In terms of, you know, the culture with which you grow up, the belief system with which you grow up, what you think is high priority versus low priority. And so I think it was just an incredible experience. I think the downside that most people talk about is that it's hard to move around. And I think there are some people that have an incredible difficulty and do not react well to it. I think I'm lucky. Me and my sister both are lucky that we share our parents' wanderlust and our appreciation for change and our appreciation for discovery. And so I think whatever downside most people might naturally think of just simply wasn't on our radar screen. That's not entirely fair. I mean, there were probably a couple of transitions, especially the transition from 10th grade to 11th grade, going from one school to a new school and that to going from one country to another country. It was probably a little bit harder than I anticipated at the time. But in retrospect, was in and of itself, if you buy the notion that every experience sort of makes you stronger or teaches you something, was in and of itself an awesome one because it meant that I got to graduate from one of the greatest international schools in the world, Jakarta International School. And I made yet another set of lifelong, internationally minded, internationally bound friends and friends that I'm still close with, almost to the point of it's not accurate to call them friends. It's only accurate to call them family. I think it was awesome. Absolutely fantastic. And I wouldn't have given it up for anything. Could you talk a little bit more about what you were doing in 10th and 11th grade? I spent a lot of time in the area of speech and debate, which, you know, I think in retrospect at the time, I knew was quite dorky relative to being on the varsity team of one of the athletics programs, but also something that I just happened to be good at. And I think there's an element of it's important to find what you're good at, and it's important to fall in love with what you're good at. And then I was really blessed by being in a really intensely academic environment. And having that be a high priority for my family to begin with. So my grandfather on my father's side was a a writer. My grandfather on my mother's side was the headmaster of the school that my mom and dad attended as high schoolers. He was also my mom's math teacher. And so I grew up in and around an academic orientation. And I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you that my mom was a teacher. uh, And oftentimes at at many of the schools that, that I attended internationally. And so there's a heavy emphasis on academics. Could you tell us about your jobs from starting at Trilogy to where you are now? Yeah. Well, I mean, that story starts with the fact that I started as what this company, Trilogy Software, called a business developer, Mm -hmm. which I don't think was as specific as the role would have been called at other companies and, and the role that is well known as sort of inside sales or sales development representative. I think it had a little bit of a lofty title because I spent most of my time just doing cold calls. Now, admittedly, it was an enterprise software company, which is a close corollary to, especially at the highest of ends in in terms of complexity of solution and complexity of sales cycle, is sort of more analogous to being at a consulting firm than it is anything else. And so what it entailed first and foremost is something really difficult, which is picking up the phone and calling strangers and doing it in an upbeat fashion and getting shot down a lot um, and oftentimes finding a personal connection or a professional connection because of what that person does and what you have to offer that actually clicked and doing that over and over and over again just to get the opportunity to be able to say, 
to somebody, I'd like to understand who you are and what your role is and what challenges you as a business person or, or whatever the sort of target market might be are faced with in the hopes of being able to say that I am earnest, that I'm keen to help, and that I actually do think that I've got some very specific solutions that I can map back to your challenges. And I think that's, you know, if I intentionally described it in, in what you might think is somewhat of a generic way, it's because it is sort of a generic thing and it's highly transferable to lots of different industries, lots of different things to sell. And it's in many ways the basis for some really important lifelong lessons as well. What are some of those lifelong lessons? Well, the first of it is to be genuine, right? Is to just be who you are and to own up to that. I think that's something that really resonates with folks, especially with strangers. And that's what makes, you know, strangers turn into acquaintances, which then turns folks into friends and ultimately family. And so I think being genuine is really important. I think by the same token, being persistent and being earnest which is to say that you're not interested in connecting simply for the sake of connecting. You're interested in connecting because you believe that you've got something of value to offer. Now, there's a methodology that's that you have to follow in order for that to not come across as strange or weird or overbearing. But I think this idea of being earnest and insistent is an important capability in life. Could you talk a little bit about what your business does and what do you do like on a daily basis running the company? Well, I feel like that last question is the easiest one to answer, which is I think most people would say that CEOs of companies do nothing, that the real work gets done by other people at the company, and that at best I could be described in my day job as being a juggler or being that guy on YouTube that is constantly spinning plates, or better yet, the guy that's in that YouTube video that's really quite famous from the very beginnings of YouTube's days. I think it's called The Evolution of Dance, where this guy goes through a series of different music genres and just does different you know, wild dances. And I put that in the category of entertainment <laughs> and making hard work fun. I'll come back to that in more specific terms, but I guess you're supposed to say, you're not supposed to say those things, I guess, in my role. You're supposed to say things like, I set strategy for the business, and I set key performance indicators for the business, and I make sure that each individual function has the tools, but most importantly, the human capital to be able to pursue the goals that I ask them to pursue. And I guess that's all true too, but that's the kind of stuff that I'm sure anybody can read on the internet. I think the former stuff is probably why I'm excited about the job that I get to do and why I keep doing it. All of which brings me to what I think is probably even more interesting, and that is what we do as a business. So Prescriptive Data is a company that is laser focused on the real estate industry. So we don't sell solutions to anyone outside the real estate industry, except those that are in other businesses that also happen to have lots of real estate. So to be more specific, real estate is everything from commercial office buildings to this terrific conference room that's at you know, my apartment complex in Austin to the single family home that we are renovating in Austin to retail buildings that you go into to, you know, buy a smoothie from to warehouses, to stadiums, to hospitals, and the list goes on and on. And each one of those different types of real estate are in the real estate industry referred to as asset classes. And they have 
different purposes and they've got, you know, I didn't talk about hotels, like hotels operate very differently than apartments, but they've got a lot of shared characteristics, but they've got different purposes and the list goes on and on. And the long and the short of it is that real estate represents the largest financial asset class in the world. It's worth over a trillion dollars globally. And as it relates to our business, the thing that's most interesting about it is some people will say 25%. I've heard more often 40%. Real estate represents somewhere between 25 and 40% of any given metro area's greenhouse gas emissions. So if you believe that climate risk and climate change is one of the most significant challenges to face humanity, certainly in recent times, but to be fair, since we're talking about the earth ever, then I'm really privileged to be able to say that we're focused on not all of it, but a piece of it that's really, really significant and that's really important. And so the way to think about this is that our customers spend energy in order to deliver the product that real estate exists for. So for example, if I was talking to somebody that owns a large commercial office building, they've got tenants that they're looking to look after to provide them with productive and safe and healthy workplaces that promote innovation, that promote productivity, that enable the work of their tenants to get done. And they need to spend money and they need to expend energy on things like the comfort of their tenants. Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, it can't be too hot, can't be too cold. It's got to be safe. It's got to have indoor air quality that is clean and that's healthy for its occupants. And all of those things result in the expenditure of energy, as well as what goes hand in hand with that is the creation of greenhouse gases. And so as the world gets serious, everything from those that were involved in the Kyoto Accords to those that were involved in the Paris Accords to those that have just come back from the COP26 conference, you know, everybody is trying to figure out how to First of all, understand what their baseline greenhouse gas emissions are, and then they're trying to figure out how can they reduce them. And so we do a couple of really interesting things, the headline being that we help real estate owners and operators, as well as those large corporations that have lots of their own real estate or that might lease lots of real estate, understand exactly how much greenhouse gas emissions they're putting out into the atmosphere, and then give them tools, as well as methodologies that are based on artificial intelligence and machine learning Mm -hmm. to reduce their energy demand, Mm -hmm. therefore reduce their energy costs and save money, and also avoid some of the coming fines that real estate owners are facing from what's, what's called compliance regimes, basically taxes on their operations in an effort to reduce their carbon footprint such that they can absolutely play a part in turning back the clock on climate change and save money at the same time. And do your customers tend to be more money-driven to go carbon neutral or something close to that? Or are they more driven because they are with the cause? Yeah, it's a mixed bag. Um, There's no question that it's important to start by saying that there are early adopters that are sustainability oriented and that are believers that this is first and foremost the right thing to do. Even if it doesn't produce savings, even if it costs more money, it's something that they believe in their heart of hearts is really important to lead with. It's important to recognize that there are those folks. And then there's folks that are 
sort of fast followers that believed the same things, but that simply didn't know necessarily how to go about it. And that now that the early adopters have shown proven approaches for achieving real impact, you've got these fast followers that are eager to let the early adopters to take the credit. They just simply want to be given a playbook so that they can do it themselves and do it as quickly as possible. And then there's a bunch of folks for whom, you know, this isn't a perceived priority. And we spend a lot of time trying to make sure that they will receive economic benefits from our technology, such that even if they don't think that it's a social imperative, that they think of it as a business imperative. That I think is okay. Rather than lambasting them, I, I celebrate them for having their own point of view. And ultimately, you know, they will help us take this really cutting edge technology into the mainstream and make it de facto technology, which is ultimately good for everybody. And obviously good for us as a business focused on this particular area of climate change and global warming and that kind of thing. Could you talk about the startup process and what do you think is important to find success in business? I think that first things first, startups are really hard. Mm -hmm. Making something out of nothing is really hard. And to be fair, that last statement I think applies to everything, not just startups. Making music in a way that's new or that's different is hard. Making art from scratch is hard. So in that sense, this idea of making something out of nothing is always going to be really hard. And so I think you have to think deeply about what are you trying to accomplish and why is that important? And it doesn't have to be important to the world. It could just be important to oneself. But I think that's the first place to start because that's what gets you through the ups and downs of this really hard process of making something out of nothing and convincing other people that they should care about it and that it's important to them and everything that comes after that. That's the first thing that comes to mind. I think the second thing comes to mind is to be open-minded. Mm -hmm. The best young companies are ones that are curious and that they stay curious as they get you know bigger and broader. And that's all a function of asking lots and lots of questions, trying to understand your stakeholders' point of view, and then trying to understand if what you're proposing is either a good fit to those stakeholder views or a bad fit. And then lastly, being flexible and patient about the fact that it might take some time to get other people to understand what you're trying to accomplish. It might take some time for you to understand what it is the data is trying to tell you. And it certainly does take time to iterate on what you're working on until eventually you achieve a high degree of overlap between what you can provide and what your would-be customers actually want. Awesome. Well, Sonu, it has been so amazing to get to talk to you today. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Will, thanks so much for having me. And let me know if you want to do another 10 podcasts on climate change. As always, thank you for listening. And please make sure you subscribe to get updated when new podcasts come out. I'm Will Burkhart, and you've been listening to Studying Success.